It's time for August birthdays, and I want to say a very happy birthday to some of my Patreon supporters and send you best wishes for the next year with whatever life brings you. A very happy birthday to Beth, Dylan, Elizabeth, Jerry, Jenny, Kaylin, Kimberly, Lisa, Mary, Marielle, Nicola, Quinn, Shannon, Susan, Tara, who happens to be my cousin, Vertrice, Stacy, Jessica, Maria, Christine, Jennifer, Tina, Georgia, Gabby, Kristen, and Shay. Thank you so much for all of your support. As always, have a piece of cake for me and celebrate the whole month. Happy birthday. Julie Schenecker spent years struggling with her mental health, dealing with medications, psychiatrists, and hospitalizations. But when she did the unthinkable, would that history be enough to minimize her culpability? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. It's another week and another case. Just two quick announcements. Tickets to the September 8th Generation Y 10-year anniversary live show are still available, and I'll leave the links to the in-person and virtual tickets in the show notes. In addition to Generation Y, Aaron and Justin have invited me, Josh from True Crime BS, Esther from Once Upon a Crime, Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage, and Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice. It's going to be a great live show event celebrating podcasting and the Generation Y. Also down in the show notes will be a link to Spotify Live. On August 27th at 5.15 p.m., I will be doing a live podcast recording from the True Crime Podcast Festival, and you can watch through Spotify Live for free. All day, there will be various podcasters jumping in the virtual room to do these podcast recordings, so definitely check that out, and a full schedule is on the True Crime Podcast Festival Facebook page. That live recording will be a shorter episode than I usually do, which is not true for this week's episode. So go ahead and settle in. I found this topic on one of those top 10 style articles and thought there had to be more to it than the sensational headline. And no surprise, there was. And it's something we really do need to think about in regards to how we handle the intersection of crime and mental illness, which is an intersection that we as a society are at more often than we want to acknowledge. The main sources in this case are People Magazine's coverage, mostly by Steve Helling and Jeff Truesdell, and the book Sleep, My Darlings by Diane Fanning. Say it with me. All sources will be linked in the show notes. This case begins in Germany in 1987. Julie Powers was stationed there as a Russian linguist as a military intelligence officer. 
She would basically speak with defectors from the Soviet Union with the intent of getting intel from them. While stationed in Germany, she started a volleyball program for the officers, and she also acted as the coach. This was her actual educational background. Julie had a bachelor's degree in physical education and coaching. She had joined the Army after graduating. A young officer named Parker Scheneker joined that volleyball team, and he and Julie very quickly hit it off. They made their relationship work even when the Army separated them occasionally, like when Parker was sent stateside for several months to be an instructor. In October of 1992, the two were married in the United States and then returned to their posts in Germany. But there was something that happened right before the wedding that Julie did not tell Parker about. She had become depressed. She went to a psychiatrist to get treated and was successfully medicated. Even though the two had been together for a while at that point, Julie still did not tell Parker about this until after they were married. The fact that she didn't tell him tells me that she felt there was a stigma around mental illness. In January 1994, Julie was pregnant with their first child, and that's when she left the Army after about 10 years. She had been on a career path in the service, but she just didn't see that being the right decision for the family as a whole. Having two parents in the Army is difficult. There is no guarantee they'd always be stationed together and absolutely no promise that they wouldn't both deploy at the same time. Julie would later say that her depression was also making it hard to do her job. So it made more sense for the entire family for Julie to be a stay-at-home mom while Parker went after his dream of one day making it to general. Their daughter, Calix Powers Scheneker, was born on September 12, 1994, in Germany. Calix is an unusual name. It's actually a botanical word. You know how under the petals of a flower are those green leaf-like bits? Those are called sepals or sepals. Both pronunciations are fine. And the calyx is the term for all of the sepals together. As for why this name was chosen, calyx is the name of the yearbook from Washington and Lee University, where Parker graduated from and had a lot of fond memories. After Calix was born, the Schenekers experienced what military families know too well, and that was a series of moves, first to Leavenworth, Kansas, and then to Honolulu, Hawaii. It was in Honolulu that their son, Powers Bo Schenecker, was born on September 28, 1997, shortly after Calix's third birthday. Just like she had done with her first pregnancy, Julie went off of her antidepressants while pregnant with Beau. But after the pregnancy, she dealt with postpartum depression. Things seemed to stabilize again with a medication adjustment, 
And things seem to be back on track. Julie was always an involved and loving mother, which is not unlike the millions of other parents who parent while living with mental illness. By 2001, the family was stationed back on the mainland U.S. on the East Coast. That year, Julie sank into what was characterized as a severe depression and was hospitalized. While she was in the hospital, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. Schizoaffective disorder has elements of both a mood disorder and schizophrenia, like delusions and detachment from reality. The exact symptoms vary between people. Julie ended up doing nine months of intensive inpatient treatment before being released for outpatient management with her new medications, which included mood stabilizers. Eventually, Julie was diagnosed with a personality disorder as well, but it has not been specified beyond that. With Julie again stable on her medications, the family moved back to Germany when Parker was stationed there again. Things were going well until mid-2005 when Julie decided to stop taking her medication. The Army gave Parker orders back in the United States, and for the next six months, Julie was in a manic phase. In 2006, Parker took her to Walter Reed Hospital for treatment. Julie's previous diagnoses were confirmed again, and she was put back on medications, and things again stabilized. Julie did well when she was on the right medications with the right dosages. By May 2008, the family moved again, but they stayed in the United States. This time, they went to Tampa, Florida. Thanks to all of Parker's promotions over the years, he was making a good salary, and they bought a house in a gated community. Because the kids were older at this point and in school full-time, Julie spent her days cleaning the house, playing tennis, and working on volunteer projects until it was time to pick up the kids and run them to all of their activities. Everyone was doing well as they settled in Tampa, 11-year-old Beau especially. He was a friendly and outgoing kid, something that is a blessing when you are a military kid, and you have to make new friends every few years. He was really charming, and kids and adults alike really just liked him. He did well in school, but his passion was soccer. He was an excellent goalie, which, as a soccer mom, I can tell you is another thing that can endear you very quickly to your new friends. His older sister, 14-year-old Calix, was really the academically focused one of the kids. She was driven. She was also an incredibly talented artist and athletic, much like her mom. She didn't make friends quite as easily as Bo did, but when she did make friends, those friendships were tight. She had a solid group of friends in Tampa who started a Harry Potter club together at school, and they did charity fundraisers together. They just seemed like such a great group of kids. 
Calix was attending a high school program with a rigorous curriculum, and she did well in her ninth grade year. But while in the 10th grade, Calix seriously started looking at boarding schools so that she could finish out her high school years away from home. And it seems the main reason she was looking into this was because things were not good at home between her and Julie. According to various people, Julie began withdrawing in 2010. It was noticeable because Julie had been active, attending track meets and soccer games, driving the kids here, there, and everywhere. And then she seemed to just not be around as much as she sank into another severe depressive episode. I'm not sure about others out there who have dealt with depression, but for me, I've never found a word that encompasses the progression of a depressive episode better than sank. But there was another issue at play in this situation with Julie. Julie had had a surgery, and she was prescribed oxycodone, a narcotic painkiller. Not only did she become addicted, she was also mixing it with alcohol. And that was on top of the medications she had been prescribed for her mental illnesses. This is not a safe combination by any means. The mixing of medications and alcohol got to the point that Parker did not want her driving the kids around because he never knew when she was sober and when she wasn't. And that's something that other people noticed in the fall of 2010. Parker was picking up and dropping off the kids far more frequently than before. In October 2010, Julie drove to Calix's cross-country practice to pick her up, but Calix then drove them home. On the way home, Calix stopped at the grocery store and ran in while Julie waited outside. When Calix got back into the car, Julie just started looking into the bag she brought out. Calix said something to the effect of, don't look in there. It's not necessarily that Calix bought something she didn't want Julie to see, but probably just that she didn't want Julie poking her nose into her business. Things between them were already contentious, to put it mildly. I'll say it's not always easy raising teenagers, and it's also not easy being a teenager and having a mentally ill parent whose illness is not well-managed. It's easy to see why there was tension between them and why it had been escalating, but unfortunately, that doesn't make the solution easy. Anyway, when Julie tried to look into the bag and Calix responded in an irritated way, Julie took it as talking back, and she backhanded Calix. And once she crossed that line, she kept going, slapping Calix in the face for around 30 seconds. When she stopped, Calix drove towards home. She slowed when they got to the gate into their neighborhood to wait for it to open, and Julie slapped her again. Julie then raised her hand back up, but Calix grabbed it to stop her. 
Initially, Calix didn't say anything about this incident, didn't even tell her dad. But then she was at a counseling session where she disclosed it to a therapist who then called the police in early November as they were a mandated reporter. In Florida, parents are legally allowed to use physical discipline on their children as long as it doesn't cause, quote, harm. While you will find many debates on parenting boards about what harm means, in practice, from what I have gathered, it's generally judged based on if there was an injury or a significant mark left. By the time the police saw Calix, it was a couple of weeks after the incident, and there were no marks on her. She told them that her face was red and her lip bled at the time, and a bloody lip would definitely cross that line of harm. But Julie told the police that wasn't true. While she admitted that she hit Calix three times due to disrespect, there was no injury. Calix told the police that this was the first time she was hit like that, and usually punishments were things like getting grounded or having her phone taken away. Because Calix had no marks on her at this point, and she was saying this wasn't part of a pattern of physical abuse, the police chose not to file assault charges. They instead forwarded the case to Children's Services for follow-up, and a case was opened with that department. And a few days after the police were questioning them, on November 8th, the other shoe dropped. It was around 11 a.m., and Julie was driving roughly 70 miles an hour in a 55 zone when she crashed into the back of a truck that was pulling a trailer of lawn equipment. The police responded to the scene and found that Julie showed signs of drug impairment. Her pupils were dilated, and when they flashed the light at them, they didn't shrink. She also seemed to be mumbling and slurring when she spoke. Julie was sent to the hospital where she was checked out, but she left before any drug or alcohol testing was done. She ended up getting a $150 ticket and sent to traffic school for her, quote, careless driving, though it's highly likely she was driving impaired. And this scenario is exactly what Parker was worried about and why he didn't want the kids in the car with her. While Julie basically got away with this, legally speaking, Parker told her she needed to leave the house and stay away for at least a couple of nights. After two days in a local hotel, Parker drove Julie to a rehab facility for drug and alcohol treatment. Parker, after 20 years of marriage and two children, still wanted to work this out. He had been by Julie's side during her previous low points, and this one was not going to be any different. But he wanted to get a full picture of the situation before she came home from rehab this time. 
So Parker reached out to her psychiatrist. And the doctor said that due to privacy laws, he couldn't tell Parker anything without Julie's permission. She would have to sign a release, which she refused to do. Parker emailed Julie shortly before she was supposed to get out of rehab, asking her again to sign the release. Julie replied, quote, hell no, sorry about your luck, end quote. Parker emailed her back asking her to reconsider or at least talk to her doctor about it. If her concern was about all the private things she told the doctor, he could still keep those private while still sharing ways the family could work towards improving things. Parker was worried that the situation would quickly spin out of control. Julie still refused. And when Julie first got home from rehab, she pretty much climbed into bed and didn't want to get out. Based on things Parker wrote to Julie in an email, it sounded like she said she wouldn't come out of the bedroom until Parker's mother left. His mother was staying there because she came to help with the kids while Julie was in rehab. Parker wrote in the same email that it was his job to protect the children and that they had expressed they didn't feel safe with Julie. Julie then agreed to go to intensive family counseling. And obviously, things didn't change overnight. But they did seem to be improving. Calix and Julie still argued, but Parker tried to mediate to some degree. He told Calix she needed to be more respectful when speaking to Julie, and he told Julie that she had to remember that she was the adult in the situation. She had to be more mature in her approach and not resort to childish arguments. Things were headed in the right direction, slowly, but Julie was trying to do the usual family things through the Christmas season to keep everyone's spirits up. She was struggling, but she seemed to be trying. Children's Services did a follow-up with the family in December and noted that things were improving based on what Parker, Julie, Calix, and Bo all told them. Calix and Julie both admitted that they still argued, but that there were no physical outbursts by Julie. The caseworker noted that the two had largely agreed to disagree and then walk away when they started fighting. By New Year's, things seemed stable. But this didn't mean that Parker then took a step back. He kept leaning into healing them as a family. In early January 2011, he took the kids to Al-Anon in addition to their family counseling. Al-Anon is a support group for people who have been impacted by someone else's alcoholism. I personally found it to be incredibly helpful in my young adulthood, and I still use things I learned there in my life today. Most of the advice I give people on boundaries came from there. Parker's hope was that they could, as a family, learn tools on how to deal with the addiction aspect of Julie's struggles. And then on January 11th, Parker was told he was being deployed to Afghanistan. 
but it was a short trip. He was only going to be there for 10 days. However, he did not get a lot of notice. He was leaving six days later. Parker considered not going. I mean, deployments in the Army are not exactly optional, but he could have gone to his commanding officer and explained that there was a family hardship to see if they could delay the trip. Another option would be to have a family member come in to help while he was gone. Maybe not his mother again, since Julie didn't seem to react well to that the last time, but maybe someone from Julie's side. Things were more or less stable at this point, as far as Julie's external behavior went. And these kids were not toddlers. They were 16 and 13 at this point. They could make their own lunches and dinners if need be. They had friends who could help with rides if needed. And Julie had been out of rehab for a bit at this point, and Parker believed she was sober, so he wasn't necessarily worried about her driving the kids around. Now, he was wrong about that last point about sobriety, but it is what he sincerely believed at the time. Parker and Julie talked about the situation. He brought up the options they had if she felt being alone for 10 days to take care of the kids was just going to be too much for her. But she looked him in the eye and said that she could do it. So Parker decided to go, and it seems he may have gotten some pushback on this decision, or maybe it was just general feedback from family members about how he was handling things overall. Because on January 15th, Parker sent an email to both of their families and a few close friends. In it, he first thanked them for their offers of help, but said that their criticisms were coming from a place of ignorance. He asked if they ever lived with someone with bipolar disorder. Had they ever had their spouse hit them in front of the children? Had they ever dealt with a 50-year-old who had the judgment of a 10-year-old? He asked them to reserve their judgments, And I really feel this email was the result of 20 years of doing his best, only to have multiple people come up to him telling him what he should do. No matter how well-intentioned those suggestions were, and I do believe they were well-intentioned, that's a hard thing to accept when it's coming from people who don't have experience with the situation you're in. Parker was clearly frustrated, and he even mentioned how Julie hadn't told him before the marriage about her mental health issues. He wasn't prepared for it, yet he had still been there for her every step of the way. The responses to this email were supportive, but Julie found out that Parker had sent this email. And after Parker left for Afghanistan on January 17th, she started asking people to send it to her. Her brother straight up wouldn't forward it on to her. He instead expressed to her that he was worried about her. And he also wanted her to remember that every time she went to the hospital or rehab or some type of facility for treatment, Parker and the kids welcomed her back. 
He even reminded her that Parker was likely going to leave the army before making it to his goal of being a general, just to offer the family more stability by staying in one place. It sounds like her brother wanted Julie to see that Parker was not the enemy here, but rather the one person who was holding everything together when she couldn't. Her brother also said he was willing to come to Florida to help her, but he wasn't going to come to essentially enable her by simply picking up her slack by babysitting and running errands. He told her that she needed to make steps towards getting better, and he would be right there for her, but he questioned if she was willing. Julie's sister, on the other hand, was inclined to send the email to Julie, but she didn't do it until she spoke to Parker about it. They emailed back and forth, and she let Parker know that Julie wanted to see the email. And she personally believed that not knowing what was in the email was worse for Julie than anything Parker actually said in it. Parker agreed and suggested she send it to Julie. The day after Parker left for Afghanistan, the Florida Department of Children and Family Services closed the case on the family after getting a positive report from the family therapist, and all indications were that they were doing well. They were actually doing all of the things child services would require anyway, like family counseling and safety plans, things like that, so there was not a need for intervention. Parker stayed in daily communication with Julie and the kids while he was gone, mostly through email, but also on Skype, and everyone seemed to be doing okay. On Thursday, January 27th, Parker left Afghanistan as planned. He was going to spend the night in Qatar before heading home. He sent an email back home saying he was on his way back, and that same night, Julie emailed him, Get home soon. We're waiting for you. The next morning, Friday, January 28th, 2011, Julie's mother, Patty Powers, woke up and checked her email. She saw one that Julie had sent to her and to Julie's siblings the night before around 9 p.m. In this email, Julie thanked her family for their support. She wrote that things were very difficult for her. She was so sick, mentally, in her words, that she had to admit she could barely take care of her children. She then went on to say that Bo had developed the same attitude Calix had, and both of them were a 180 from the sweet little ones they had been. She wrote that she was at her wit's end and she would end it soon. Patty read this and interpreted it as possibly suicidal ideation or even intent, so she immediately tried to call Julie. When Julie didn't answer, she called Calix and Bo's cell phones and got their voicemail. Her next call was to the Tampa police to ask for a welfare check. The police went out to the house around 7.50 a.m., There were no cars in the driveway, and there was a sticky note on the front door that said, no carpool today, went to New York City. The officers knocked and got no response. They looked into the windows and didn't see anything that alarmed them. 
So they walked around the perimeter of the house into the backyard and saw a woman lying on the floor of a screened-in porch near a covered pool area. When they called out Julie's name, she sat up a bit dazed. She was wearing pajamas and a robe with blood on them, though she was not injured. She also smelled of alcohol. The police asked where the kids were, and Julie said they were inside. They asked if they could go into the house to check on them, and Julie said yes. But once they were inside, Julie's mood changed from dazed but compliant to agitated. On the main floor of the home, the police found a gun on the dresser inside Julie's bedroom. In her bathroom, they found a box of ammo with 10 missing bullets and five spent casings. They then went upstairs, and in the open loft area, they found a computer desk and chair with blood everywhere. They saw what looked like bloody drag marks from the computer to a nearby bedroom. When they entered the room, they found the body of 16-year-old Calix Powers Schenecker under a blanket. Though the officer could tell by looking at her that there was no way she survived the gunshots to her head, he checked for a pulse, but of course, he didn't find one. After Calix's body was found, Julie headed towards the sliding glass doors like she was going to make a break for it, but she was quickly pulled to the side and handcuffed. The police continued searching the house and found Bo's room, but he wasn't in there and it wasn't disturbed. Then they went to the garage. The family's minivan was parked inside and had a hole in the windshield with cracks branching out from it. From their experience, they knew this was consistent with a bullet hole. The hole was on the passenger side, and inside the passenger seat was a white blanket. They saw a leg sticking out from under it. When they pulled back the blanket, they found the body of 13-year-old Powers Bo Schenecker. He, like his sister, had been shot twice. Again, they checked for a pulse, even though there was no way he was alive. Back inside the house, they asked Julie for some basic information, like the kids' birth dates, and then they arrested her on suspicion of double homicide. They took her to the station to interview her. And while there, Julie pretty much immediately confessed. I was able to get the full transcript of this interview and confession because ABC Action News uploaded it to Scribd, so a big thank you to them for making the document accessible. The interview started around 11.40 in the morning, which was about four hours after the welfare check was called in. Julie was visibly shaking when she was arrested and while in this interview. Not just shaking, but full-on tremors. She was asked about it, and she said it was a side effect from Abilify, and Abilify is an antipsychotic medication. It is not uncommon of a prescription for someone with schizoaffective disorder. 
The detectives asked Julie what other medication she was taking, and she listed some of them, but she couldn't remember them all. She also seemed to be confused about what medications were for what. At the house, they found and cataloged two different anti-anxiety medications, two mood stabilizers, two antidepressants, an anti-tremor medication, a blood thinner, a sedative sleep aid, two empty oxycodone bottles, and seven loose pills in a pharmacy bag. It's not uncommon for psychiatric medications to be used in combination with others that do the same things in certain situations. So I'm not saying Julie wasn't taking all of these medications, but it's also possible that some were older prescriptions that she wasn't taking anymore, but still had leftover pills around. That has not been made clear in what I read. But Julie seemed very confused about her own medications when speaking to the police, so it makes me wonder if she was even aware of what she was taking. And the police seem to be wondering about how much Julie was aware because it seems like from the transcript that they were trying to figure out how clear-headed she was. It could backfire on them if she confessed and then it got thrown out of court because she wasn't competent enough to talk. After Julie mentioned all of the medications she could think of, she also said she had spent the last eight weeks in bed depressed and that she had taken her medication and drank wine the night before. Now, I'm reading a transcript. I can't say what she sounded like that made the detectives decide to go forward. But Eric Glasser with WTSB in Tampa reported after hearing the recording that, quote, the confession does not make Julie Scheneker sound like she was very stable, end quote. The police, however, believed she was with it enough that she could understand her rights. As they were reading them to her, Julie interrupted in the middle, asking if she should get a lawyer. The detective told her to let him finish, and then when he was done, he told Julie that, the lawyer was up to her. He couldn't advise her one way or the other. So they then recapped her rights again and asked if she understood them and wanted to talk. Julie said she did. When asked what happened, Julie replied, quote, I think it was the, the thing that I just toppled over the last straw. My daughter, my 16-year-old, is just mouthy. And that is the part of her confession that got this case sensational headlines of the mom who killed her kids for talking back, which, as we know from the last 30 or 40 minutes we've spent working on this podcast, that that is not the whole story. Let's go over this confession. It is rambling in parts, confusing in others, and it's also occasionally repetitive. So I am going to present the information to you in a straight line, which I assure you is not how Julie presented it. So definitely do not take the way I am telling a clear story and think that's what Julie did. She absolutely did not. So Julie did tell the investigators that she loved her children until they were about six, and that's when they started getting mean. But then she later said Calix had been talking back for a couple of years and that Bo had just started a few weeks before that 
copying Calix's disrespect. Based on that timeline, it was more like around the age of 13 they started talking back, which I'm sure is shocking to anyone who's had a teenager. Julie said this talking back included Calix calling her names and saying things like she was going to leave for school and never come back. Julie told the investigators that she knew that they would be committing suicide because of how bad Calix had been. Those were Julie's words. So the investigators then asked Julie if she knew the difference between suicide and homicide. And she did. She defined them correctly. But it's not really clear if she saw the difference in this situation. Julie said that the initial plan was that she was just going to take her own life. But then she didn't want her kids to live with the stigma of that. And she didn't want them to be embarrassed by her bipolar disorder. So she decided to kill them as well. So basically, Julie's giving us two motives here. One, to spare them from the stigma of her illness. And the other, because they were mouthy and rude. She would later go on to add possible other motives, which we will get to later in the episode. But regardless of the why, as for what exactly happened that night she killed her kids, Julie was willing to walk the police through it. And though she was vague on a few points, what she said lined up with the evidence. On the night of the murders, which was the night before the welfare check, Julie picked Calix up at track practice and brought her home. She then had to bring Bo to soccer practice for 7 p.m. On the way to practice, Bo leaned over to tie his cleats and saw that Julie had pulled out her gun. He told her to put it away, and when she didn't, he said put it away or he would hit her. Julie said they were about halfway to the practice, so she turned around and started driving home. Julie said the gun went off, shooting the windshield on accident. Julie then aimed it at Bo and fired. At some point, she fired another shot into his mouth. This is one of those points she was vague on the sequence of. After Julie got home, she pulled the minivan into the garage. Leaving Bo's body in the car, she went up to the loft area where Calix was working on her homework at the computer. Julie came up behind her and shot her in the head. She then shot Calix in the mouth. She said shooting Calix in the mouth was because she was so angry at Calix's mouth for talking back. Over the next couple of hours, Julie covered the kids with blankets. She checked on them a couple of times. She hugged them, which is how she got all that blood on her, and she sent the email to Parker telling him to get home soon and that they were waiting for him. She sent that after the kids were killed and when she expected him to walk into the house and find all of them dead. Julie also wrote a full confession in her notebook and then sent her mother and siblings the email that triggered the welfare check. After finishing up these loose ends, Julie took a bunch of pills, washed them down with alcohol, and went out to the back patio to smoke, 
before going back inside to take her own life. Except she passed out due to the mixing of medications and alcohol before she could finish what she set out to do. And where she passed out was exactly where the police found her the next morning. During this confession, Julie asked the police if they thought the kids were dead, and she was told that they were. She was also concerned about the police telling Parker what happened because he would be so upset. Now, this notebook that Julie said she wrote her confession in was found at the house. It was a spiral notebook with Bo's name on it and a little label that said language arts. And it's always so odd when something so very normal happens in the middle of these types of extreme circumstances. It is such a parent thing to do, to need paper and just grab some cast-off extra notebook left over from the kid's school. On one page, there was a list of things Calix had said to her that were disrespectful. Most were pretty typical for a teenager parent arguments, things like leave me alone and stay out of my business. Julie also wrote that Calix had once sprayed her in the face with a Lysol when she came inside from smoking, and that when Calix was 12, she suggested suicide. Julie is an unreliable narrator, and it's not clear if Calix ever said or did these things. We do know that she talked back to Julie. There are witnesses to that. But as far as spraying her with Lysol and suggesting she take her life, that's just Julie's word. To illustrate the unreliable narrator that is Julie Scheneker, on another page, she wrote my faults at the top and listed one thing, not punishing Calix. Julie had told the police that the kids bullied her but not Parker because Parker was more strict with them. But Calix's friends saw the opposite. Calix was often grounded when Parker was out of town because it was Julie that was punishing her and then enforcing it. Others noticed that whenever Julie would pick Calix up places and call her to let her know she was out front, Calix would drop everything and head straight to the car. She would stop conversations mid-sentence because she knew she had to be out there as soon as her mom was ready to go. So it doesn't sound like not being strict enough with Calix was the root of the problem, though according to Julie, that was her only fault. Also in the notebook was a note to Parker, which was a full confession, as well as the plan to kill the children before the murders. This notebook proves this was not spontaneous. The murder plan was set into motion by at least January 22nd, when Julie drove 30 miles to buy a gun in a store where no one would recognize her. She filled out all of the paperwork and learned she had to wait three days to come back and get the gun due to Florida's gun laws. Julie went home, pulled out her notebook, and wrote that the, quote, massacre will have to be delayed. Julie also wrote that the plan was to shoot the children and then kill herself with a combination of pills, alcohol, and carbon monoxide poisoning. 
That was what was written before she killed them. After Julie wrote out a confession, it was very similar to what she told the police, but there were a few additional details. She wrote that she shot Calix while she was at the computer and then rolled her body, still in the computer chair, to her bedroom. She put her body in the bed, putting down towels so that her blood didn't mess up the sheets. Then she covered her with a blanket and then rolled the chair back to the desk. Julie wrote that she wanted to carry Bo inside and lay him in her bed, but she didn't think she could lift him. So instead, she just covered him with a blanket while he was still in the passenger seat. Julie wrote that she didn't want to use the gun on herself after seeing what it could do, and she hoped that the overdose would work. She also wrote that she shouldn't have been sent to rehab, but rather to a psychiatric hospital. After she finished writing, Julie texted a friend multiple times, but these were pretty incoherent. That was around midnight, and the friend didn't see him until the next morning. Julie likely passed out from the combination of medications and alcohol shortly after this. After Julie's confession, she was processed and put into a cell, but her tremors had become so uncontrollable that she was taken to the hospital for treatment. She was not taken to the hospital for mental health treatment, and the police were very clear about this to the media, saying that this was a pre-existing physical health condition. Julie had been seen on news cameras shaking, and the authorities wanted to let the public know that this was not from shock. Julie was then indicted on two counts of first-degree murder on February 10th and arraigned on February 16th under heavy security. Her attorney entered a plea of not guilty on her behalf. Parker did not attend court that day. He was out of town being supported by family and friends following the funerals for the children earlier in the month. Two days after the arraignment, though, on February 18th, Parker visited Julie in jail. He told her that he did not want to talk about what happened at the house, but instead focused on telling her about the memorial services that they held both in Florida and also in Texas, where Parker was from, and how many people came out to honor Calix and Bo. Then towards the end of the visit, Parker told Julie that he wanted a divorce. And he had come to the jail that day because he wanted to tell her face to face. She just replied, okay. But it wouldn't exactly be okay due to finances and legal issues. It first started when there was some back and forth over whether Julie would qualify for a public defender. While her personal income was nothing as a stay-at-home mom, the household income due to Parker's job was far above the line to qualify for representation through the public defender's office. But Parker was certainly not interested in paying for an attorney for the person who had murdered his children. So the court determined that Julie could get a public defender. However, in Florida public defenders are not entirely free. If you plead guilty or if you are found guilty, 
the court can require you to pay back reasonable attorney's fees, but you don't have to pay if you're acquitted. Julie agreed for the court to freeze marital assets in the event she would have to pay the public defender's office down the road. But Parker was not okay with this. Not only would it delay the divorce and cause him some trouble as he tried to settle things, it would also force him to help pay for the defense of the person who killed his children. So to counter this, Parker ended up filing a wrongful death civil suit against Julie in early May 2011. He told the media that this was not about getting her half of the divorce proceeds for himself, but that he would use that money to set up a memorial fund in honor of Calix and Bo. So now we have a family court handling the divorce, a civil court handling the wrongful death lawsuit, and a criminal court handling a murder trial. All of these are involved, and we really cannot get into the details of all of them, except to say the divorce was obviously granted. And as for the civil case, it made waves when Julie's attorney in that case filed their answer, putting some of the blame on Parker. They said that he was partially responsible for what happened because he left Julie alone with the kids when he knew she was mentally unstable. They used the email he sent to family saying that Julie had the judgment of a 10-year-old as evidence. Julie's attorney was pretty quick to say to the media that they really had hoped not to have to file their response as early as they did because they really didn't want to rile up emotions by laying blame on Parker in any way. However, they needed to file and Julie had the right to a vigorous defense. This civil case would drag on even as the criminal trial went forward in April of 2014. The prosecution had filed the intent to seek the death penalty, but they dropped it right before trial. The state attorney issued a statement saying that they had been provided with overwhelming evidence of Julie's mental health issues. They did not believe that if Julie did get the death sentence, that it would be upheld on appeal due to these mitigating circumstances. Julie's defense said that her mental health wasn't just a mitigating factor for sentencing, but it was also relevant to her guilt as a whole. Julie was going for an insanity defense. Florida uses the Monoton Rule to determine if someone is not responsible due to mental illness. The rule has been around since the 1800s, and it begins with the premise that everyone is sane. It is then up to the defense to prove that at the time of the crime, the defendant did not know that what they were doing was wrong. It shifts the burden of proof to the defense, and it's a very simple question. When Julie killed her children, did she know that killing them was wrong? At this trial, the facts of the case were not in dispute. It's the interpretation of what they meant. 
For instance, the defense conceded that Julie walked into a gun store and bought the murder weapon days before the murders. She picked it up on the day she killed the kids. But they argued that at the time, Julie was suicidal, not homicidal. So her behavior at the gun store could not be used to show that she knew what she was doing was wrong. But the prosecution said the notebook indicated otherwise, because Julie wrote that the waiting period before she could pick up the gun would delay the, quote, massacre. By definition, massacre means more than one person. They also had the salesman testify that Julie told him she needed the gun because her husband was gone a lot and there was crime in her neighborhood, which was not true. So she had enough clarity of mind to try to hide the purchase and the true reason for it, which indicated she knew what she was about to do was wrong. The state also called Julie's psychiatrist to the stand to get an idea of her state of mind at the time. It seems like he had only seen her monthly during the six months or so before the murders, so it's not like he was doing a regular weekly counseling with her. It sounds like it was more uh, handling the medication side of things. And in his notes, he did write that Julie was getting increasingly depressed in spite of treatment. In December 2010, Julie mentioned suicide to him, and he assessed her for possible hospitalization against her will using the Baker Act. The Baker Act in Florida is also called a 5150 in some places, and it is involuntarily committing someone for 72 hours due to mental distress. There are requirements for this. It's not like you can just go sign someone up for it, and the doctor at the time did not believe Julie qualified. So he saw her in late December and then called in early January to check on her, but that was all the contact he had. So she had not been in to see him in the month leading up to the murders. And so to me, that gives him a limited insight into Julie's state of mind at the time of the murders. There was one part of his testimony, though, that really upset Julie. He testified that he had warned her not to mix alcohol and her medication. She yelled out liar and said that he told her she could have two drinks a day and two oxycodones. The judge sent the jury out of the room at this point, and Julie was warned that she could not have outbursts like that anymore. If she did, she would be restrained. In addition to the psychiatrist who had been seeing Julie before the murders, she was also examined by multiple experts after, and this turned out to be a bit of a battle of the experts. Dr. Randy Otto with the University of South Florida was a very compelling witness for the state. He pointed to a number of things to show that Julie knew that what she did was wrong, including telling the police that she felt horrible and that this was the worst thing she had ever done. Julie also knew to lie about why she wanted the gun, and then she left a note on the front door telling people that they went to New York, which would delay their bodies being found. And she wrote an apology to Parker in her notebook. On cross-examination, Dr. Otto did concede that a person can feel bad about their actions and still be considered legally insane. But Dr. Otto said that this one was not a close call. 
Even though Julie was severely mentally ill, she knew that killing her kids was wrong when she did it, and that is the bar for the courts. Dr. Otto also gave a detail that had not been published before. After killing Calix, Julie said she pushed up Calix's mouth to make it look like she was smiling. It's not entirely clear what this says about Julie's state of mind or if it favors the prosecution or the defense, but it was such a disturbing detail for those hearing it for the first time. The defense also had their expert to examine Julie and pretty much said the opposite of Dr. Otto. Julie did not know that killing her children was wrong because she believed it was the right thing to do because it would protect them. And this is where we hear the new motive that I briefly referred to earlier in the episode. Julie claimed that Calix had symptoms of bipolar disorder and that she also believed Bo was going to be sexually abused. Though Julie had no rational reason to believe either of these things, this fear came from her own life experiences. She had struggled to stay stable with her own mental illnesses. Her depression was one of the reasons she left the military, and she blamed it for taking her career. And when Julie had postpartum depression after Beau's birth, Parker went and got a vasectomy, though she wanted more children. She connected her depression to Parker's decision. She believed she lost what she wanted in life due to her mental health. And, in her twisted thinking at the time of the murders, she believed she was saving Calix from the same fate. As for Bo, Julie had experienced sexual abuse at the age of six. She even testified in court against her abuser. And when she was 17, she was sexually assaulted. She knew how this had affected her throughout her life, and again, in her mind, she was saving Bo from the same. Though the defense presented this through their expert witnesses, Julie did not take the stand herself to explain all of this. And the jury did hear her initial confession to the police, where she stated that she killed the children because they were mouthy. The closest she got to saying she was protecting them was from the stigma of her own issues. It took the jury two hours of deliberation to find Julie guilty on both counts. Afterwards, Julie apologized for her actions, and she sobbed as she said she knew what she did, but she didn't know why. She was then sentenced to life in prison. A year after the verdict, Julie granted an on-camera interview with ABC Action News for the first time. The videos are linked in the show notes. Back when this interview was uploaded to YouTube, they still had that 15-minute video time limit, so it is broken into multiple parts. This interview was the first chance we see Julie tell what happened in her own words and in her own way since she didn't take the stand. And Julie is clearly struggling through this interview. 
There were points where she seemed a little confused, others where she was clear, if not entirely rational, and then there were moments where she got emotional and choked up. Julie expressed some complaints about her trial, like how everyone had said she was a good mother for years, but then when it came to trial, no one said that. She said that her husband and her doctor lied on the stand about her mental health, though really all they said was that, yes, she was mentally ill, but they didn't think she was homicidal. Julie also said there was evidence about her mental health leading her to be violent in the past that wasn't brought up. She said she once headbutted another officer's wife, and one time she chased down an enlisted soldier who played a prank by stealing the wreath off their door. She felt it was important and relevant for the jury to know this for some reason, Julie also said she regretted not taking the stand. Julie reiterated that the motive was protecting the children, but instead of claiming Calix was showing signs of bipolar disorder and fearing Bo may be abused, she claimed at this point that Calix had been diagnosed and Bo had been abused by someone she refused to name. The journalist who did this interview was very direct, but also very compassionate. Her name is Serena Fazan, and it's a really, really well-done interview. She asked Julie about saying she killed her children because they were mouthy, and Julie said she didn't know why she said that and that she didn't even remember the interrogation at all. She said she first learned that's what she said when she read the transcript during the discovery phase before her trial. When asked about trying to put a smile on Calix's face after death, Julie was surprised and asked the reporter how she knew that. This was a genuine reaction of shock that this information was out there, even though it was at the trial and Julie would have heard it herself. Anyway, she answered that it was just one side that she pushed up because the other side was already turned up and she wanted it to be evened out. In this interview, Julie also claimed that it was her and Parker's pride that stopped her from getting the help she needed. And maybe at this point, she just didn't realize how much Parker had told other people or how often he reached out to her doctors for help and information. Maybe she didn't remember how many times he took her to the hospital and rehab for help. Putting what happened on Parker's shoulders is, in my view, entirely unfair to him. He did everything he could to get another autonomous adult to get help. And now here's the reason I wanted to cover this case and have us think about the bigger picture. Julie Scheneker was and is severely mentally ill. Watch that interview. Look at her history. That was never in dispute. To me, she falls into a gray area. Maybe not legally, according to the Monoton rule, but that is so black and white that it hardly gives us any room for conversation. Julie Scheneker is not Andrea Yates. She was not truly psychotic at the time she killed her children. But she's also not John Wayne Gacy, who made up a split personality and claimed it was the other personality who committed these crimes. Julie Scheneker is both severely mentally ill 
and was also aware that killing her children was wrong. But is justice being served with her being in prison rather than in an institution that could help her? Or is there a solution we could come up with somewhere between prison and an institution where mentally ill inmates can receive appropriate treatment? Because I'm telling you, watch that interview. You will see that Julie was not stable. Years after her arrest and placement in the Florida Department of Corrections, it is hard to believe that her illness is being well-managed. And I'm not saying that we need to come up with a solution for this one woman. According to the Florida Health Justice Project, in 2020, 25% of Florida's inmates received psychotropic medications. That's 44,000 people in Florida prisons alone. How many of them are being appropriately treated for their illnesses? We need a solution for health care in prisons, and that includes mental health care. Julie Scheneker is appealing her conviction. The first appeal was rejected in 2016, and the second is currently pending. She is claiming ineffective assistance of counsel, stating that her attorneys should have pushed to move the trial out of the county due to the pretrial publicity, and they should have called more witnesses to testify about her long history with multiple mental illnesses. In 2014, the wrongful death suit Parker had filed was voluntarily dismissed, but there's no news on if it was due to a settlement or if it was fully dropped. As Parker intended, he started the Calix and Bo Scheneker Memorial Fund to grant scholarships to promising leaders, athletes, and artists. They have granted over $70,000 in scholarships and grants. If you would like to learn more or make a donation, I've left a link to their website in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.